All right, so last night we asked, drop your pen. We asked, an, shut your mouth. We asked an important question, which is um, the, the, the context of this whole weekend, it pivots around this word, therefore. And we asked the question last night, what is the therefore, therefore? And we, at, we said, if anyone is in, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You can read up here on the screen. Here's what it says. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There's this word in Greek, irene, which means peace, right? Um, in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, there's a prophecy that foretells hundreds uh, of years before Jesus is born, that when he's born, the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That word peace is the word, if anyone knows someone named Irene, where we get the name Irene is Irene. It means, uh, it means peace. It means calm. It means the end of war. It, it means to make things peaceful. So we got to ask some questions here in this passage. All this is from God who through, through Christ reconciled us to himself. Okay, we, I, I gave you a promise yesterday that I'm going to talk to you like you're adults and tonight's going to be worse than last night, right? Because I, I, if, if there's a message that I think the Christian church balks at, it's this one. But I think a lot of us, like, Jesus, for a lot of us, he's, he, in, in our common vernacular in America, like, Jesus is like a swear word, right? Uh, and, and so there's not a lot of honor or respect given to his name. And for a lot of us, again, we've kind of forced Jesus into the margin of our life as if the God of the universe is big enough to fit in the margins of your schedule and your energies and your focus. Like he's going to sit there. Like God is going to ask you what's most important to you. You're going to say something other than him and he's going to be cool with it. Like it's just not going to happen. And so we haven't gotten this real picture of Jesus. And the Bible says this. It says, the beginning of the wisdom of your life starts at the moment where you understand the fear of the Lord. And most of us, if I said, do you fear God? You wouldn't really know how to respond to that. And our culture, generally speaking, is not afraid of God. We have no fear of God. And you can try to make the word say whatever you want, but the original language, when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it means the fear of the Lord. Not a healthy respect, not a subservient acknowledgement. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we, uh, there's some really fundamental questions that we rarely ask in church because we're afraid of the answer to those questions. And so we grow up just kind of thinking. We, we kind of meditate on these things once when we were like four years old, and we never think about these questions again. Let me start by asking you this question that I think this whole thing poses. And, and everything we talk about tonight, I, I want to I ask it, and I want to talk about it through the lens of this. Imagine you go to the doctor, and the doctor does a scan of your body, and they find out that you have terminal cancer. Some of you, this, this, this is not... Um, some foreign hypothetical situation. You've watched people walk through cancer. You've lost friends to cancer. You've lost loved ones to cancer. You've lost parents to cancer. I do not mean in the least bit to be insensitive to that. Cancer is hitting my life. Cancer is probably hitting your life. But, but I want you to then think about that loved one especially or think about yourself or think about your mom, someone in your life that you love more than anything. And imagine they go to the doctor and the doctor does a scan and they find out that they have terminal cancer. They see it on the screen. The doctors, they, they collaborate. They all, they all understand. If something isn't done, if we don't get this out, if we don't fix this, if we don't fight this, if we don't eradicate this, if we don't get rid of this, if we don't poison this through chemotherapy, you are going to die. But then the doctors deliberate and they say, but imagine the life this person is going to live in fighting this cancer. Imagine the moment of being told that you have terminal cancer and how uncomfortable that would be. Imagine the process to weed out cancer and how painful that process could possibly be. So the doctors collaborate and they come to a conclusion. I think it would be better that we just tell them that nothing's wrong. 
that the doctors get together and they go, you know how awkward that's going to be. Someone's going to cry. They're going to have to change their whole lifestyle. They're going to have to morph the way that they see everything. And we still have to tell them that something needs to be done to fix this or it's going to kill them. Do you know how awkward that's going to be? Do you know how painful it's going to be to hear that? Now imagine the doctor of the one that you love or or your very own self, they make the decision then and they collaborate with the other doctors that they're going to tell you that it's a fatty deposit or that it's some simple mole that's grown out of control, but you don't need to worry about it. They recommend that you put some kind of a patch over it, that you put some kind of a band-aid so you don't see the lump or see the swelling or anything else like that, and they send you on your way and they remind you, again, this is nothing to be concerned about. And it grows, and it metastasizes, and it chokes out your very life force. And then you are dying on your deathbed, and you look the doctor in the eye, and you go, you are the most hateful, horrible, evil person I've ever met. I was able to, I could have had a decision to make. I could have fixed something. I could have eradicated it. I could have sought help. I could have fixed something. And they say, I wasn't, I understand, but I didn't want to offend you. I didn't want to present that to you. I didn't want to. This is, this, is the, this is the foundation of this message tonight. In this scenario, I'm the doctor, and the scripture, although you read scripture, scripture reads you too, okay? The, while you, you might be reading the text, I want you to feel in a very real way that this text is reading you. That's the power of the living word of God. Okay, and, and tomorrow during seminars, I'll be doing something called it's apologetics. Um, so when I was your age, I didn't believe in God because I thought it was intellectually deficient to believe that there was a God. I, I was like, you want me to believe what about Jonah and a whale and about Adam and Eve? And I knew all this stuff about evolution and I knew all this stuff about moral theory and I knew all this stuff about everything. And so I went, there couldn't possibly be a God. And so I went on a journey to try to prove to my dad, who's a pastor, that his belief was ridiculous and something really gnarly happened to me. I read the best atheist literature on planet Earth and I thought they were brilliant. And then someone introduced me to Christian thinkers for the first time and my whole life was shattered. My whole thought process was shattered. I always thought that Christians were weak-minded, psychophantic people who needed some kind of hope for their dying grandmother. So they bought in hook, line, and sinker. But if you want to believe in God, you've got to check your brain at the door. What I found was the exact opposite. I found that my, my view outside of God was bankrupt. I had no real reason to believe what I believed. And I didn't even, I, why should I even trust what I believe if all I am is a product of a random evolutionary process. And so um, I'll be talking more about that tomorrow. But if, if you're kind of built like me, if you're more cerebral in that, and you struggle mentally, you struggle intellectually with the concept of God, I'm, just, I'm letting you know that tomorrow we'll be addressing that in the seminar. But, but as, as it goes right now, I, when I'm telling you that this, this Bible checks out throughout history, archaeology, historicity, bibliographically, as being the divine word of God, I'm not making that up. I don't believe that because I grew up in a Christian home and that's what they told me to believe. I believe that because I've studied it. I've focused on it. I've looked at ancient text. I understand the, the, the power of prophecy and I believe this to be God's holy word. I think that God revealed himself through the book called the Bible. Not through the Book of Mormon, not through the Bhagavad Gita, not through the Upanishads, not through anything else. They're all broken. They don't work. They're historically inaccurate. The Bible is perfect in what it says. And I can, I can walk you through the whole thing. I teach, I'm a systematic theologian and I teach apologetics at a master's level at a college. And it would take me 16 weeks to walk you through why I believe what I believe. Tomorrow we'll do a brief overview in the seminar that I'm teaching. But that's all to say right now that if you have an intellectual hangup, it's okay. <laughs> There's really good answers to your questions. And God's not afraid of your doubts. And, and sometimes I mean, you're, you're the, the family you grew up in is, Maybe your friends are afraid of your doubts. I promise you God's not afraid of your doubts. He welcomes them. Okay, you don't need to defend God. He's like a lion. You just open the cage and let him do his work, okay? But that's all to say, when we read this, this isn't some dude who wrote this and simply went, this is the best idea that I have. This is God's holy word. So when you read this, you're not just reading it. It's reading you. And it's making verdicts, and it's placing calls, and, and it's, it's, it's just like a doctor testing you. It's walking you through diagnostics right now, and it's coming to a conclusion about the, the status of your soul and the eternal destiny of the immaterial person that you are. Remember, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. 
you have a body. And the Bible runs diagnostics on each and every one of us because the Bible says that the Lord does not look at what man looks at. He looks through the flesh and into the heart. And he's made a decision right now, currently in this moment, from the position that you sit in on where you're going to end up for the rest of your eternity. He knows the status of your heart. Bro, you don't read the Bible. It reads you. The fact that you are able to read English is a complete anomaly of the situation. The Bible exists as a penetrating, the word, the, the book of Hebrews says, a double-edged sword. It can separate sinew from flesh, from bone, from marrow. Its purpose is that you would not just know God, but that you would understand that he knows you. Why is that beautiful? Because the fake version of you that you've pitched to everyone on planet Earth, including your own conscience, the version of you that you want to believe that you are, is still insufficient in, how, in the depths of the way that the God of the universe knows you. And he died for you anyway. That crap is bananas. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Okay? Reconciled himself to us. Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus... Become man. <laughs> the Christmas story is beautiful. And then you understand the ramifications of the Christmas story, and it's a little bit horrific. Jesus declares time and time again why he existed as a man. It wasn't for funsies. It wasn't Christus exemplar. That's what a lot of us think. A lot of us think God became man so he could go, y'all, watch me, watch me live. This is how I live, and I'm going to live my whole life so that you can see how I live, and that's why I have come. But when you ask Jesus, why did you come? He doesn't go, I came so you could see a good model of how a life is well lived. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have come to pour myself out as an offering. I have come to die. Jesus was not crucified because his bodyguards weren't paying attention. He was crucified because that is the price that it took to take away your sin. Let me ask you a second question. Who killed Jesus? Romans, in a way that's true. Who killed Jesus? The Jews, in a way, that's true. They accused him of blasphemy. He claimed to have the ability to bring back the temple in three days and to crash it all at the same time. So yes, the Jews accused him of blasphemy. Rome was tired of the insurrection that he was causing. These are all historical figures. For a long time, we didn't know any of these things, but now we found these people's bone boxes. We know that they, where they were buried. The people in Luke chapter two, in those days, Caesar Augustus issues a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first since that took place while Quirinius was governor over Syria. Everyone to an own town register. All of that is verified in archaeology, historicity. Everything's verified. So we ask the question, yes, the Jews killed Jesus. They put him on trial. Yes, the Romans actually are the ones who nailed him to the cross. Who killed Jesus? Did humanity kill Jesus? Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus divine? Yeah, you do. So here's the, what you have to say then. I like the answer because it comes from a place of humility to ask who killed Jesus and you say, I did. But bro, do you think <laughs> you have that kind of power? Like if you and Jesus fought, you like your odds. <laughs> Jesus could be like, mm, snakes. And like snakes would come out of the ground and eat you. They would bow to him on the way and he'd be like, Okay, right? Like, in John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was with God, he was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. That means God, Jesus spoke universes into existence. Like, you're not gonna beat him in a fight, and if you wanted to kill him, and if you want to kill him, you wouldn't be able to do it. Who killed Jesus? <laughs> God did. Here's how we know that. Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of the Father that the Son would be crushed. We have to ask a question then. Why did Jesus come? 
What was he satisfying? What was he doing? Why was it the will of the Father to crush his very own son? How does any of this make sense? What is it motivated by? And the final question we need to answer this night is where do you stand in relationship to this most cosmic love act? This is what you have to answer. Because here's what first, here's what 2 Corinthians says. It says, Christ reconciled us to himself. It, it means he made peace with himself on our behalf. Because sin is what we're talking about tonight. What is sin? Sin is the idea that we talked about previously last night is you were made on purpose, by purpose, for a purpose. Sin is when we take the purpose that God made us for, the almighty potter making us as clay, who's given us a job. The book of Isaiah, once again, says that your job is to, like the Westminster Catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The word glorify means that you exist as nothing more than a mirror to point to the king of the universe and to make much of his name. That's your job. That's why you're breathing. That's why you're here. And again, any, any purpose that is self-discovered is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. And we always have to appeal to the creator on why we were made, which means that you exist for one reason. It doesn't matter how you exist. It doesn't matter if you exist as a boy or a girl or tall or short or black or white or anything else like that. Every human being was made to make manifest the glory of God. That's your job. So we judge every human being, I should say, God judges every human being on their ability to fulfill the purpose they were created with. So I ask you this question. Does your life glorify God? Does your life act? Does your very state of being, does, when people look at you, when they look at the purpose and the meaning and the value of your life, do you exist first and foremost to bring glory, to make much of the name of Jesus, to, to be all about him. If you think you exist for anything else, the term the Bible uses is idolatry. Idolatry is to worship, that word literally means to give worth to something other than the reason you were made. So if you have a tournament of champions in your brain, right? Think about everything that's important to you. Think about everyone that's important to you, Right? You've got a little, like, uh, think about like March Madness tournament coming up. I want you to try to do a little thought experiment and just put eight teams up there, your personal teams. Sports might be one of the teams for you. Um, success might be one of the teams for you. Money might be on your chart. Your boyfriend, Jack, might be right there. This, the, all these people that you care all about, right? You're obsessed. Um, you, everyone is, has kind of filled in your chart. And then you got to ask yourself a question, what would happen if the guy that you really like or the girl that you're obsessed with and your family, which is also on your chart, what if you could only keep one of them? What if there was a tournament of champions of your brain and you had to give worth, value, and meaning and you had to get rid of one of those in your life? Who would you get rid of? I don't want you to answer the question. Like, Think about it in your head, though. If you fill in that chart and you get to a point, probably for a lot of you, and it's, I'm not asking you to do your, your Bible christian answer, right? Like, I'm not looking for that. I want you to actually examine your life. Would you get to a point where it was God and something else, and if those two competed against each other, if your friends group said, we will continue to accept you if you get rid of this whole God thing, who would win? If your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your obsession or whatever it is said, it's me or God, and both couldn't share the throne, who would win? Here's what Jesus says. He says, if you're not willing to hate your mom and to hate your dad and to hate your very own body and to hate your life, then you're not ready to follow me. I told you it's offensive. Jesus doesn't mince words. If you're not ready to hate your very own life, now, does Jesus call us in Scripture to hate our moms? No. He calls us to honor them. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying if it came down to the competition was me versus your parents, and you couldn't choose both, you need to follow me with such an intensity and love me with such an intensity that comparatively it would look like hate towards your parents. 
This is the call of Christ. When the Lord bids a man, he bids him come and die. So if there's a tournament of champions in your head, when you actually ask the question, when these two compete, what would I do? If you had to give up everything else that was important to you. Someone asked it to me this one way. He said, imagine you die and you go to heaven. And everything that you loved about planet Earth was there. Your favorite food, all your favorite people, your favorite experiences, your favorite locations, your favorite activities. Everything was there. But then you found out that Jesus was not. Would heaven be sufficient for you? That's a heavy question. And in it, a lot of us find our idols. If we would take a Jesusless heaven, he might not be the king of our hearts. If we would take all the trimmings and trappings of this world, if it was service on a silver platter, and we would get rid of Jesus in the doing so, the question becomes, what kind of idolatry exists for us? You see, when we rebel against God, and each and every one of us has, you want to know how I know that? The Bible says, the, the book of Psalm, chapter 51, verse 5, it says, into iniquity I was born. You were conceived into it. Which means you don't just do sin. You're not a good person who does sin every once in a while. You are a sinner. And if we really examine our hearts, like cancel culture is the most remarkably hypocritical thing on planet Earth. It's virtue signaling. And all it does is say, I'm going to cancel you because if I really examine myself, I'm just like you. But if I can call for your canceling, then no one ever examines the bigotry of my heart, the hatred of my heart, the hypocritical nature of my heart, the sin nature of my heart. You know I'm, you know I'm right. Well, even without God, we would all live in harmony. Do you know what happens in any place on planet Earth where there's no ramifications for what you do? Humans go back to their nature, which is to sin, to steal, to rape, and to pillage. Read a history book, man. Any conquering tribe, any conquering nation that isn't going to be put on blast by other nations does whatever they want. It's the human condition. The reason you're so frustrated in yourself is because you might think of yourself as a good person and you get so upset that you keep doing bad things. Let me free you from something. You're a bad person. That's why you do bad things. Dogs, when they get wet, smell like dogs because they're dogs that are wet. You know what I'm talking about? It is a very simple concept. And this is what the Bible says, right? You don't get to appeal to your mom. You'd be like, well, my mom thinks I'm good. Here's the problem. Your mom's not good either. You're like, whoa, whoa, Brenda is great, right? Like, again, when two things come into conflict with one another about what their purpose is and what their value is and what their moral worth is, and they come into conflict, and one thinks they're good and one thinks they're bad, you have to appeal to the creator. And here's what the creator of your soul, the one who knit you together, the book of Psalms says, in your mother's womb, the one who knit you together says this, Romans 3, verse 10, there is no one right with me, not even one. No one even seeks after me. When mankind opens their mouth without Jesus in their hearts, they do nothing but spit out poison. They kill everything that they possibly can. They are about themselves. They are, Martin Luther says, curvatus and say, we are navel gazers, obsessed with our own abilities and our, our own prosperity. That's who we are at our core, Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The verdict for mankind from the king of the universe is that you're not a good person. There's actually, I felt like when someone finally told me that, it was freeing. It was like, oh, freaking finally. Someone told me the truth. This is why I feel like I'm captive to my sin. This is why I feel like I'm captive to my emotions. Because when I don't ask my mom and I don't ask my teacher and I don't ask my whatever, right? Like for a lot of us, there's the same person. We're homeschooled and it's like, we love camp, right? <laughs> I heard a swear word this week. It was great, right? <laughs> I homeschool my kids, so I guess they will too. Um, but when you examine scripture, the Bible says, no, 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 no. And this is why we get confused at why Jesus came. 
Because for a lot of us, we go, I'm a pretty good person. Here's our chart. Here's humanity's chart. Are you ready for this? If I asked you, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try this. What's up, Reggie? You got real Macklemore energy going on right now. Are you going to pop some tags? You know, they got $20 in my pocket. Hey, you guys shouldn't be listening to that music. Not cool. That was a test. Calvary Chapel. Uh, just kidding. Um, so, just kidding. Roman. Are, Reggie, you a good person? What was that? What did you instinctively want to tell me? Yeah. If you didn't hear what I just said, and I just asked you that before I came out, and I said, Roman, Reggie, are you a good person? What would you have said? You would have said yes. And if I said, Reggie, why do you think you're a good person, what would you have said? You help others. So helping others makes you a good person. Have you ever told a lie? Everyone has told lies? That's not what I asked. Have you told a lie? You have? Um, have you ever looked lustfully at a woman? Yeah? The Bible says that anyone who's looked lustfully at a woman has committed adultery in his heart. Have you ever been angry with your neighbor, your friend, anyone, parents, siblings? You've never been angry before in your life? No? So you just lied again. That sucks. Okay, so there's like another notch down your belt. So here's the point. The point is, Anyone who begins to answer the questions, we in, what's our knee-jerk reaction? What was Reggie's knee-jerk reaction to whether or not he's a good person? Was to compare himself to who? Other people. That's what we do, right? You don't want to look at me, do you? Because you know I'm going to call on you. What's your name? What is it? Lily. Lily, Lily where are you from? Um, Santa Barbara. Nice, Santa Barbara. Cool, okay. Are you a good person? No? <laughs> She's all like, just don't talk to me. Like, I, no, I'm not. I need Jesus, whatever. Okay, I'll stand if you want me to stand. Just like, please leave me alone. What's your name? Brass Pro Shops. You like to fish? No. So you're a poser. Yep. <laughs> you wear skate shoes too, probably, huh? Um, what was your name? Allie? Allie? Callie. No. Dally. Dally. Dally with a D. Are you from Dallas? No. Why is your name Dally? <laughs> it's legit. That's a cool name. It's unique. I like it. Dally, you a good person? No? Do you think you're a good person? Before I did this message, would you have thought yourself as a good person? You just, you're straight up like, no, nah, it's not me. <laughs> no, man, I'm depraved. Like, it's all over. Okay. It's fair. What's your name? Ireland. Ireland, like the country? Ireland? Well, that's confusing for its own sake. That's just so you can correct everyone for the rest of your life, right? My name is the United States of America. United States of America? No, it's with an E, not an A at the end. It's like, you totally biffed my name. So, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. Ireland. But if I say it fast, you don't even know if I'm saying your name correctly or not. What if I was saying Ireland the whole time and you just corrected me for no reason? That's pride. That's what I'm talking about, guys. This is what I'm talking about. This is a sort of, just kidding. Ireland, you a good person? You're not? Why are you not a good person? You can't live up to God's standards. That makes you a bad person. What's your name? Olivia? Are you a good person? You're not? Before tonight, would you have called yourself, considered yourself a good person? Yes. Yeah, like if you were in a job interview and the guy was like, so you're a pretty good person, you would have been like, no. no. You would have said you were. Yeah. Okay. Um, who's a bad person? Hitler. Hitler. <laughs> Guys, this, no, I'm not kidding you. That's what we always do. Is that not the wildest, like, th that's the craziest twist of fate ever. As human beings, our standard for good is that you have not 
committed racially biased genocide. Like blows my conscience every time. I'm always like, every time I ask a student, who's bad? They're like, well, at least I'm not Hitler. I'm like, yeah, okay. What a high standard we must have of ourselves. But what does this show? We want to believe. We, we want to believe in the core, in the depths of our being that we are good people. Which does what? It nullifies the bleeding, deadly cross of Jesus. Because he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus says, I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. We have a generation of people who's coughing and puking, who's testing positive for every disease on planet Earth. And Jesus is going, I'm here to help. And we're going, <coughs> I'm fine. <coughs> bleeding, death, cancer, brokenness. This is, this is literally the diagnostics of our culture. We don't think we have an issue. Jesus is altogether unneeded in a culture where we all think we can take pictures of our food and everyone's going to be interested in it. We've never done anything wrong. And my standard of good is I'm just better than Hitler. <laughs> the Bible puts us up against a very different standard. The Bible says, James, the book of James chapter two says, if you've stumbled in one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. Every sin you've ever committed, and a sin is any time that you've been called to be a perfect, glorifying person, to glorify God perfectly, if at any point in your life, including in your conception, when you were born human, you already sinned because you've taken part in the mutiny of humanity in general, but then everything you've done since then, every thought, word, action, attitude, indeed, that you've performed that didn't perfectly glorify God was cosmic treason against the king of the universe. What is the punishment for treason? Death, always death. And you go, well, it's not cosmic treason. God says, I gave you my perfect law. I built you perfectly in communion with me. You as a species rebelled against me. In doing so, you've welcomed sin and fracture into your heart and into your culture. And you have grown so lovingly fond of the taste of dirt that you don't even understand that you eat garbage every day anymore. And we're so unwilling to tell other people that you are chewing on trash and that God has a better life for you. We're so afraid of offending people that people go out their whole lives with the hum and the white noise of culture until they close their eyes in death and meet God face to face. And he says, you got a bad case. You needed to be reconciled, but if you think you're good, what need have you for reconciliation? What point does Jesus the suffering servant serve if you don't think you've done anything wrong. When the Bible examines you and it does, it lovingly reaches out to you like a loving doctor reaches out to a patient and says, friend, your future is death. And it's not just temporary death. It's not just death of the body. The, 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 the way that it's talked about in scripture is the word hell. And, and the reason that, the, that hell for so many of us has such a knee-jerk reaction is because our, our culture has cartoonized it and made it be this place where this like frumpy dude wearing leather walks around with a pitchfork and like pokes people. Like it's, it, and this is, like, this is what we think of as hell. And, and here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus talks about hell, he talks about a place that he is not. And you might think to yourself, Fantastic. I don't want any part of Jesus anyway. I don't live with Jesus right now. I don't care about Jesus. So I would love to go to hell. Hell is a place where Jesus isn't, but here's what you must understand. The Bible says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights to all. And it says, God in his perfect loving mercy sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Which means whether you're a murderer or you're Mother Teresa, you're going to enjoy a steak equally. Whether you are Hitler himself or you're the nicest person who's ever lived, when you jump in the ocean and experience the waves hitting you, you can still enjoy yourself. Why? Because even though you don't want anything to do with God, you borrow all of the goodness of God with every breath that you take. Check this out. A world without God is a world without any of the characteristics of God in it. 
Our world is being sustained right now. Have you experienced peace in your life? Have you experienced any level of comfort? Do you laugh with your friends? Have you ever enjoyed a good meal? Have you ever been satisfied in your hunger? Have you ever had some itch that you've had get scratched? Have you ever experienced love? Have you ever had love reciprocated to you? Have you ever enjoyed mercy from someone who didn't deserve to give it to you? Have you ever been given grace? Have you ever liked being around other people? Have you ever experienced forgiveness when you didn't deserve it? Do you sit right now in sound, in sound mind? Do you sit right now in a world that is being held together and that makes sense, as it were? Do you have friendships that are able to bring you up? Have you experienced a love from a, mother, from a mother or a father figure? Every single thing that I just mentioned and everything that you've ever liked is a gift from God. And what's it meant to do? It is meant to be a love offering from the king of the universe to pull us in with his loving kindness, saying, I haven't quit on you yet. When you breathe and you take in a breath, when you laugh with your friends, you don't know it, but it's God extending another, it's his love beckoning an invitation to you. And you've got the, you've got the nerve to say that you live without God. For thousands of years, people didn't understand gravity, but it affected them every day. Tonight, you may be giving the word gravity for the first time to understand that everything you've experienced that has brought you any level of joy in your life or has kept you from any level of torment is a gift from a loving father that is extending an invitation to you once again to follow him. That's, that's everything in life. So if hell is a place where God is not, then what would it be? Every good and perfect gift removed. There would be no peace. There would only be chaos. There'd be no joy. There'd only be grief. There'd be no consciousness in the terms of, of being of right mind. There would only be torment. And I, I really don't think it's God sitting there with some like big, you know, on-off switch of like, suffer, suffer, suffer. Take that, take that. That's what we think of hell as. But I think it's God saying, if you want nothing to do with me, ultimately God gives everyone exactly what they ask for. But we don't understand that everything we enjoy is a gift from God right now. You would hate a reality without God because you've borrowed everything enjoyable in your life from him right now. Hell isn't a place where God's walking around excited to punish people. It's a place that was originally meant for Satan and his demons to be without God and all of the gifts that he's poured out on us every single minute of every single day. Don't cartoonify it. It's a loving father who responds to his kids who say, I want nothing to do with you, and he answers them in the affirmative, which is actually horrifying. Because we've rebelled against him. Because what you were made for, you haven't done. Because the way that I was made, I was made to glorify God. And if you guys could... Like, if you just for one day could crawl inside my mind and watch the theater of brokenness play out in my head, you would know right now I am disqualified from speaking to anyone. And it's true for you, too. I'm not talking about the super ego that you portray. I'm talking about the ego that your friends get to see when you're really tired. I'm talking about the id. I'm talking about the most primal inner core of who you are. The part of you that hates, that lusts unequivocally, that has passion for things, that would commit whatever needs to be committed. This is the part of you that God sees. This is the part of you that he died for and that he suffered to redeem. But you gotta get one thing. Jesus came to earth to seek and save the lost. You must then understand that you, without Jesus, are lost. Here's what the Bible says. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The antithesis. Therefore, if anyone is not in Christ, they are their old selves. Their old self, the dead self, the one that is on a path towards hell. And you're getting, every day you're getting there quicker. When I started this sermon, you were further away from hell than you are right now at this point in the sermon. And every breath you take is gambling on borrowed time. Why does Paul write in this section, I implore you to persuade you on behalf of Christ? Because Paul, as a loving pastor, sees the cliff that's coming if you don't know Jesus. And he writes 2 Corinthians warning us about what's coming. This is the role of a pastor. This is the role of the evangelist through all time. 
Turn and know Jesus. And you want to know what? Some evangelists throughout history get their kicks and giggles off of simply saying, hell is coming and it's going to really suck. That's not the passion that I have. The passion that I have is I want you to know the love of a father that you don't know. I want you to know what life is like when you know what's coming at the end. I want you to know the peace that passes understanding when you walk inside the fullness of your true design. I want you to crawl into the arms of a loving father because you've never experienced the love of even your earthly father. I want you to know peace himself. I want you to know, 1 John says, a man who qualifies and personifies himself as love incarnate. I want you to know Jesus. Of course, knowing him keeps you out of hell. And that's absolutely part of it. But I do not persuade you, I do not implore you on that behalf. I implore you because I want you to know him. But make no mistake, Jesus, like a good doctor, he's called in scripture the great physician, looks at all of us in our sickness and says, if you want to be my child, if you want to be my beloved, if you want to be redeemed, I am not going to share the throne of your life with whatever idol you're chasing. I'm not going to share the throne of your life with that boyfriend that you think is God of your existence. Because I know that if it came down between me and him, you would choose him and not me. God is too big to share the throne with anything else in your life. God can be your everything. God can be your nothing. But don't make the really dumb mistake of thinking that God's willing to be your something. He's not. He's the central part of who you are or he is nothing to you. We love spectrums in our culture. We love the Enneagram. We love like personality tests. Like I'm technically this, like I'm an introvert, I'm an ambivert, I'm an extrovert. We like to qualify ourselves in 100,000 different ways, which is ironic because when it comes to Jesus, we've put ourselves on a spectrum of our relationship to him. Don't you think so? In your head, you might have this same thing. Like, you've got the kid in your youth group who every time they're like, turn to the book of John, he's like, I've been there for 20 minutes because I am always in the book of John. And I love the book of John. And then like, okay, turn to the book of Exodus. He's like, I actually was there too. I have sticky tabs in my thing, and I'm always in the book of Exodus. You could be like, turn to the book of Second Hesitations. They're like, I just wrote it. It's Second Hesitation. It's not a real book of the Bible, but I felt like God was telling me to write this. I like, I've written that. Right? You got that kid in your youth group, and you make like this spectrum, right? Like, we'll call that guy Doug, and Doug's like way over here, okay? You know what the guy's name is in your youth group. And if you're like, I don't think my youth group has someone who's that hoity toity, guess what, friend? It's probably you, okay? <laughs> but we have the spectrum, right? It's like, this is Doug. Doug always finds the verse before everyone else. Whenever we talk about sin, he's like, well, I think my biggest sin right now is probably. I don't know. Last week on my math test, I got something wrong, and I said, I don't want to say it. Everyone's like, please, Doug, we want to hear it. You're like, okay. I said crud. Okay. I said crud. I said crud. I said crud in my head. You're like, okay, Doug. This is Doug, right? Here's our, here's our little spectrum. Doug's over here, right? And you got an over here is the person, this is like Hitler, right? This is like <laughs> Hitler, right? This is the antithesis of what we think God wants, right? This person's depraved. Everything they do is about themselves. Like they, they hurt, they harm, they're painful. Like they, they might cover it up, like, spelling, like spraying cologne on, on poop, but like at the end of the day, what's inside is garbage, right? Like they might virtue signal and practice cancel culture and be all about like helping people, but at their core, they love feeling better than people. And we have created about 37 different iterations on the spectrum. And you look at this right now and you go, I'll ask you the question, where do you find yourself? Here is like, I'm, I really love playing football and I like, like having sports and everything. And like, that's kind of what's most important to me. But like, I'll come to church camp. I won't say, I won't like do any bad stuff right? Like, I don't go in the girls' cabin area. I don't throw ice balls at people. Like, I'm a pretty good person, but you like, you kind of like right here. You're not antithetical to God. That's Hitler. But you're just like over here. Then you've got like Billy Bifurcation, who's just right in the middle, right? And it's, he's chameleonic. When he's at church, he's churchy. But on the weekends, 
It's getting crunk, right? Is that, do we say that crunk anymore? No? That's over? Okay. We'll let it go. We'll never say it again. Um, right? He's just kind of like back and forth. And some of you go like, I think that's where I am. I don't really follow Jesus, but I, uh, sometimes when it's convenient for me, I pretend like I do. And that's sufficient for me. And we have all these different spectrums. And, and let me end by telling you one thing. And I told you I'm going to talk to like adults. The Bible has no such spectrum. The Bible has two positions. Two. Not three. Certainly not 37. The Bible says, you are either a child of God to whom you have direct access to the Father. He has laid down his life for you. He has paid the price for your sin. He has walked up to Calvary's hill because you needed reconciliation with him, because there was a war between you and him, the war that you began in the moment that you were conceived, but you have turned to him, you have received his forgiveness, his death, burial, and resurrection took the place of what you deserve, which is to be crucified and buried and put out of your misery. That's what you deserve, but he did it for you, and so you are a child of God. The other position is you're an enemy of God. There's no third position. The book of Romans chapter five says, God reconciled himself to us. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies, the text said, Jesus died for the ungodly. So here's the hard question I want you to ask yourself. When you don't get 37 positions, when you don't get to talk your way out of a paper bag like you always get to do, when you don't get to use a lot of flowery language, when you're asked a simple question, given the choice, because of the posture of your heart and the status of your sin nature and the way that you have experienced God, whether you have submitted to him and given him your whole life or you've been hesitant, you've been rebellious, you've just been a little bit too afraid to get into that or you liken yourself, I'm not antithetical, but I'm not gonna be a follower of him. If you are truly asked and you examine your heart like the scriptures do and you only get two boxes, where do you fall? And it, your answer shouldn't be more than three or four words. Child of God, enemy of God. Children of God will experience an eternal paradise with him. What's paradise with him? Paradise is wherever God is without any separation whatsoever. Right now, we experience where God is for sure, but we're also in our mortal coil. We are sinful, we are stained. It's created static on the line between him and us. The book of uh, Romans chapter seven, Paul says, while I remain in my flesh, the good that I wanna do, I don't do, and that which I don't do, I, I finally calm up, I, I find myself doing all the time. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Make no mistake, believers still screw up, and I am a prime example, as Paul said in scripture, if there was a king of sinners, I would take the crown. But at the end of the day, because I've surrendered my life to Jesus, my sin doesn't stick to me anymore. It doesn't hold anymore. I used to be a sinner and now I'm not. I'm a child of God who every once in a while sins, every day sins. Are you a child of God? Or are you an enemy of God? Children of God can expect paradise. Enemies of God can expect wrath. There are no third options. This might seem heavy. This might seem like I'm talking way too severe to you, and I don't mean to. It's not for shock value. It's because this is what the text reads. This is how the text reads. Child or enemy. And like a doctor, to see that someone in my life once looked at my case and looked at my exams and looked at my diagnostics and said, bro, it's cancer, it's terminal, something must be done, and you can't do something. Something external to you must fix the impurifications. You've got brokenness, and the blacksmith looks at it and says, I need to get rid of this. It's not because I'm better than anyone else. Guys, I am a dumpster fire of a human being. But one thing I do have is I have the overwhelming unrelenting love of a father because when I was 12 years old, I sat right there and I gave my whole life to Jesus and his promise is to make me a new creation. Are you a child of God? 
Are you an enemy of God? I just want this to stir something in you. Because if it's chemo, then you need to know you've got cancer. If it's chemo you need, you need to start now. If it's eradication you need, if it's repentance you must, that, that, that is required in your heart, then it must start today. And I want you to know him. Because knowing him is better than anything else. And I'll tell you this. When you've been down the road that a lot of you have been down, and you've tasted what this world has to offer, you will not know the sufficiency of Christ until you've tasted the emptiness of this world. And if you cannot pay the dumb tax of the hundreds of millions of people who have gone before you who need to feel the emptiness of this world first and instead will surrender yourself to the sufficiency of Christ, I want you to get there. This is the best way I know how to love you. It's to tell you this is the verdict. This is the case. And tomorrow night we're gonna talk about the solution called the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, your love is better than life. But God, for, for all of us, we have sinned against you, not in just what we've done, but in the things we left undone. Every moment you've called us to do something inside of your will, every moment you've called us to glorify you and we just didn't do it. Every time you called us to stand up for the weak and the downtrodden and we refused because of the cowardice of our own insecurity. God, it's not just the things that we do every day that rebel against you, that are cosmic trees and deserving of death. It's the things that we left undone. And you as the master craftsman have created us to exemplify and to glorify you and to enjoy you. And we have looked at what we've been made into and we've decided that we are going to identify ourselves. We are gonna give ourselves purpose, God, and that has led to the deep sin of idolatry, rebellion against you. And God, because it's so prevalent in our culture, the white noise of sin has become normative. So normative that we have to point to Hitler as someone who's got a problem. God, will we open your text and see that without you, we are all destined for an eternity apart from you. And that every good and perfect gift that we receive right now is a father extending an invitation to a son, a father extending an invitation to a daughter, saying, I want you to know me. I am the giver of all good things. But God, for a lot of us, that's gonna take a deep breaking of our pride that says, I might need help. And thank you for your gospel that swoops in in our most dire circumstances and offers a light where there is only darkness and says, I have made a way to move you from an enemy to a child. If you will surrender your life to me. Jesus, it's in your name we pray.